We were buying our fruit and vegetables a couple of days ago in a shop that our youngest daughter had a summer job in probably about 10 years ago at this stage and recalled and chuckled at her interview experience for what was what a six-week job uh, working on the checkout. The interviewer, the girl who was in charge of the shop, asked her, where do you see yourself in five years' time? And of course, our daughter being our daughter, the answer was, well, certainly not here. But what a stupid question. And it's a standard question. And I hear people still being asked that question in this day and age. And what I mean by that is that surely our understanding of how careers work even, never mind how the world works, surely our understanding of how careers work has changed over the years. I mean, I grew up in an environment where we thought we'd, God help us, we thought we'd get jobs for life. There's no such thing as a job for life. Even then, it's just that we didn't know it. There's certainly no such thing as a job for life now. Job for next week, perhaps. But to ask somebody where they see themselves in the future is utter madness because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, never mind what's going to happen in five years' time. And yet, and yet, we have been educated to believe that we need plans, to believe that we need to have to-do lists to implement those plans, to believe that we have to take steps to be in control. And of course, the fact of the matter is that we're not in control, we're out of control. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about taking control of your state of mind. And in this episode, I want to explain exactly what I mean by that, because over the years, people have asked me, for example, are you talking about mind control? Now, I didn't say taking control of your mind. I said taking control of your state of mind. So I want to talk about control or what taking control means in this video, because it's the exact opposite of what the normal mind would look upon as taking control. Let's talk about planning, first of all, because most people think they need a plan. Every business thinks it needs a plan. And yet, the most successful businesses with whom I've worked over the last three or four decades at this stage were businesses who had a vision, not a plan. And I don't mean a vision in the way in which normal businesses have a vision and mission statement. I don't mean the way in which normal businesses talk about their values. That's all rubbish. I was going to use a different word, but some people might take offense. It's all rubbish. For the simple reason that it's just box ticking. I recollect many years ago getting into an elevator with the chief executive, oh, we're talking about 40 years ago at this stage, of one of the big life insurance companies in London, the city of London. And we were going up in the elevator and plastered on the inside of the elevator was the organization's vision and mission statement. And I said to him, what, what, what does this mean in practice? And he said, what? I think he thought I was looking at the emergency instructions should the lift stop, because he'd never noticed that the mission and vision statement was on the interior of the lift. 
and he didn't really know what it was about. And actually, his answer was, "Actually, nobody believes that guff. It's box ticking. And yet, and yet there are consultancy firms the world over who make a fortune out of helping organizations with their strategy and their strategic planning. And you might wonder why I've gone off into the world of business for a minute, but bear with me because this applies to businesses, large, medium, small, and nascent, and it applies to our own lives. Normal crazy people, and you must remember 96% of people are normal crazy people, need to be herded in a particular direction. That is one of the jobs of leadership in business of any size, even if there's only two or three people in a business. I recollect having a conversation with one of my best friends in business over the years, a guy who said to me, the minute you employ one person, you're in trouble because they're all mad. And he only had two people working for him. And he spent more of his time trying to corral those two people and their crazy behavior than he did trying to run his business. And I'm not exaggerating. Uh, I, I could go off in a whole new direction in relation to some of the people we employed when we had a little software business back in the mid 1990s and the madness of it all. But I won't. I won't. There's no point in dragging up, as my wife would say, SH1T from the past. We won't go there. But let me come back to the point that I was making. Businesses need to have plans, they need to have targets, and they need to have budgets, because plans, targets and budgets are kind of the glue that stick the herd of normal crazy people sufficiently together enough to generally move them in more or less the same direction. It has nothing to do with what the business wants to achieve, and it certainly has nothing to do with what the business could achieve. Let me recount a story to you. I'll recount two stories to you, actually. The first one is personal. In 1990, I got the job of turning around what was at the time a bankrupt bank. It was way ahead of its time. It had gone bankrupt in 1988, a full, what is that, 20 years before the financial crash? Anyway, I was charged with coming up with a strategy to enable this bank expand, diversify, and get to the point where it was so profitable that people would want to snap it up. And over the course of only two or three years, we actually achieved that goal. But the key point I want to make here is that after about six months in that job, I presented my strategic plan to the board. It was about 120 pages long. It was descriptive. It was what this bank will look like, what this bank will feel like, who this bank will be serving, what we will be achieving and how that feels like. And there were no numbers in it. Well, that's not quite true. There was an appendix right at the back that had a projected profit and loss account and balance sheet. But that's all there was. In 120 pages, there were two pages of financial figures. So I sat down in front of the board and the board said to me, uh, we, we, you came to this organization with a reputation. I said, yeah. And one of the things in that reputation was that you were a level-headed businessman and an accountant. I said, yeah. Why are there no figures in this strategic plan? And I said to them, 
figures follow actions. You don't have to worry about your bottom line. You have to concern yourself with what do we need to do to get to where we want to go? And more importantly, what will it feel like when we get there? Now, think about what I've just said, because I talked on one or two occasions over the last couple of episodes about what I call the two-piece jigsaw, that we need to turn up and do what we need to do to get to where we want to go. And I've just explained that again in slightly different terms. So I said to them, if you know what it'll feel like when you achieve your objective, everything else will fall into place. And it did. Second example, I worked with an individual who was the leader of a part of a global pharmaceutical company. And he just knew somewhere in his heart and soul that that company could do things that the people in California simply didn't believe him because the people in California were pandering to the people on Wall Street who were only interested in the bottom line, figures, dividends. So this guy and myself got his leadership team together and we drew, and I literally mean drew with pen and paper, we drew a picture of what his part of the organization would be like when they achieved what the people in California, higher up in the organization, would have considered to be outlandish goals. Now, one of the secrets to his success was that he didn't tell his bosses what he was doing. Just a couple of years later, he produced the results which didn't just closely resemble the picture that his leadership team had physically drawn on a flip chart. All of the little bits and pieces that had been drawn on that flip chart had effortlessly fallen into place. I'm going to give you a third example, by the way, as well, because this is for a much smaller organization uh, that I worked with about 10 years ago. They wanted to expand their business. And in fact, they had had a plan in place for a number of years and like with most plans, nothing had ever happened. They had bought this field next door to their little warehouse. It was called the donkey field for the simple reason that the only thing that ever happened in that field was that donkeys were put out to graze there during the summer. And yet the boss, the chief executive of that little business, had a picture in his head of a shiny building on the donkey field. So he and I and his team got together and once again drew a picture. Now, program owners, people with whom I work, uh, I'm sorry, by program owners, I mean owners of my online program, The Psychology of Success. Program owners know what I'm talking about when I talk about handwriting, the importance of handwriting because it sets the subconscious mind, the importance of handwriting and handwriting what I call perfect moments. In other words, outcomes, in other words, snapshots that we can internalize in our subconscious mind that give us a picture of where we want to go and what it'll feel like when we get there. Now, think about the science behind that because we've talked over the last few weeks about how as children we take psychological snapshots and how those psychological snapshots run our lives or perhaps ruin our lives until we change them. And this is how we change them. We give ourselves new psychological snapshots, obviously of our own choosing rather than the stuff that was thrust upon us when we were young, impressionable, and didn't have 
an effective enough filter to know which snapshots I should be taking and which snapshots I should studiously avoid taking. So people will know what I'm talking about when I talk about handwriting what I call perfect moments, but you can't do that with a team of six, eight or 10 people. So the solution there is to get a group of adults to draw a children's picture, seriously, of what it'll feel like when we achieve our objective. So these guys got together, these guys and girls got together and drew a picture of the new plant and a load of things happening around the new building. And one of the things that they drew was a barbecue, because what they were doing was drawing the official opening of this new business, a barbecue with smoke coming off the barbecue. And somebody had annotated that little part of the picture with a note saying the smell of merguez. Now, merguez are a French beef sausage, an acquired taste, in my opinion. But then again, of course, if you didn't grow up in Ireland, I suppose Irish sausages or black and white pudding would be an acquired taste. So be that as it may. That's what they drew. About four years later, I hadn't worked with the team again in the meantime, but about four years later, I got a phone call from the chief executive. Now, a number of people in the leadership team had changed in those intervening four years, as, as people do, they come and go. And he had put a small team of people in place, a team of three people in place, to arrange the official opening of this new building, which had been finally constructed. And the phone call went something like this. He said, I was in the States for the last week on business, and I just got back in time for the official opening of our building on what used to be the donkey field. And he said, I was walking from our existing building down the hill to the donkey field. And all I could smell was the smell of merguez on the barbecue. And I realized this is what we drew. And then I looked at some of the other things going on, the nationalities of the people there around the barbecue. And the other things, the little details, that some of which were almost put in as jokes in the original drawing, the little things that had fallen into place. He said, I had nothing to do with it. The small team of three people that I had put in charge of organizing the official opening, they weren't part of the leadership team four years ago. They knew nothing about the drawing of the merguez on the barbecue. He said, it's ridiculous how everything fell into place. Well, no, it's not ridiculous at all. Why? Because enough people had internalized a picture and as a result of internalizing it, believed in that outcome. What do I mean by enough people? Well, actually, it only takes one person to believe. It's the reverse, reverse engineering of the bad apple, if I can put it like that. I recollect a story told by Thich Nhat Hanh. Now, if you don't know who Thich Nhat Hanh is, he is among other things, the author of a beautiful little book called The Miracle of Mindfulness, a book that I have often recommended to my clients and online program owners. Uh, a Vietnamese monk who lived in exile in Paris during the Vietnamese War and lived in a place that he had set up near Bordeaux called Plum Village. Anyway, 
you don't need to know those details because you can find them online by Googling them. But he told a story about the boat people. Now, very often when I mention the Vietnamese boat people to people these days, they say, don't know what you're talking about. And I can't remember how long ago it is. It's probably the 1970s, 1980s. I could be wrong, but it's a long, long time ago where people got into boats, overcrowded boats, and set out to sea to escape what was going on in their country at the time without any idea of where they were going. So you would have too many people in a small rowing boat heading out to sea, too many panicked people, but Thich Nhat Hanh told the story that all you needed in any of those boats was one calm person. So it only takes one person to believe. Now, just as I say that, I think of another client with whom I worked in Sao Paulo in Brazil, or just outside Sao Paulo. This lady was head of manufacturing in a company where basically because the plant she worked in was so old, bits fell off the manufacturing production line every day of the week, and there would be panic and chaos and mayhem all around her. And after working with her for a couple of months, I was talking to her one morning and she said, I've just arrived in the office. And I said, what have you on today? She said, my job today is the same. And I've only just realized this as my job every day. She said, my job is to spread the calm. It only takes one person to believe. And in your life, that only needs to be you. Now, you can't believe until you take control of your state of mind. Because belief is something that happens in the subcortical brain, the neural equivalent of the gut instinct. It's something that happens in the subcortical brain. And until you gain control of and restructure your subcortical brain, you're not going to be able to take a new psychological snapshot to enable you believe. Now, there are decades of science behind the sentence that I have just said, and you need to listen to it again. It's like, for example, I said to somebody recently, because they were talking about how they wanted to be in flow and how they wanted to be present. I said, what does it feel like to be in flow? He said, I don't know. I've never experienced it. I said, well, until you do experience it, you can't decide that I'm going to be in flow today. There are things we need to put in place before we can fly. It's like run, going down the runway. You can't, if you're take, trying to take off in a plane, hobble down the runway at 10 miles an hour. There are things you need to put in place before you can lift off. And the key thing that you need to put in place to change your life is to take control of your state of mind. We're not talking about mind control. We're talking about your emotional state. Now, I don't like that phrase because people seem to think that emotions are things that happen to them. You know, anger, annoyance, panic, stress. None of those things are things that happen to you. They are things that you do to yourself as a result of your way of thinking. And that's what I am talking about taking control of, your way of thinking. Or perhaps what I'm actually talking about is your way of not thinking. We've talked over the last few weeks about how 
when we use our minds normally, the thoughts that our minds employ to enable us make it through the day are the same thoughts that we've been thinking every day since we were 12 or 13 years old, and the same thoughts that we actually learned in the years before that, particularly during the third year of our lives. So we actually need to stop thinking. What we need to do is start being, as a result of which we can start doing as a result of which, if I can put it another way, we can start taking action. Because when we are thinking in the normal crazy way, we'll never take action. We only react to what we think is going on. So we need to stop that. We need to break that chain. We need to get off that train of thought. So what we need to do is take control of our ability to pay attention. Now, cognitive psychology and neuroscience over the last 20 years have confirmed that once you pass the age of 12 or 13, you no longer have any control over your ability to pay attention for evolutionary reasons that we won't bother going into now. As I said, everything that's being said here is backed up by science. So if you're using your mind normally, you have no ability to control that to which you pay attention. You might be struggling to concentrate, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about enabling what psychology calls the attentional spotlight, it's otherwise called the central executive or the seat of consciousness. In the left prefrontal cortex of the brain, we're talking about using that, employing that and activating that. Again, we know through various researches, again in cognitive psychology and neuroscience over the last 20, 30 years, that this part of the brain is never activated after the age of 12 or 13, except in extreme circumstances. Again, which we don't want to go into because no one wants to encounter the kind of extreme circumstances in their life when this part of the brain is actually turned on. What we want to do is find out if we can turn this part of the brain on ourselves. Now, we know over the last 23 years at this stage that when you meditate, you turn on your attentional spotlight. And as I've said to so many people over the years, when you meditate for the first time, you take control of your attentional spotlight, not for the first time in your adult life, but for the first time in all of your life. Because as I said a few minutes ago, children had their attentional spotlight on all the time. That's how they took, that's how we took our psychological snapshots. But we had no control over which psychological snapshots we took. And very often we took the kind of psychological snapshots that were intense enough to be the kind of circumstances that I said we needed to avoid talking about when we're adults, when the subconscious minds, when, when the attentional spotlight actually comes on. So. When you meditate for the first time and turn on your attentional spotlight, you have taken control of your ability to pay attention and that to which you pay attention for the first time in your life. That in itself is life-changing because you've experienced something now that you didn't experience before. And as I said a minute ago, you only learn through experience. We know that regular meditation restructures the part of the brain that we're talking about. In other words, your attentional spotlight becomes permanently under your control. 
We know over the last 14, 15 years that once you take control of the attentional spotlight, the way in which it manages the components of the subcortical brain changes. And the key components of the subcortical brain, your being and doing brain, not your thinking brain, the key components of the subcortical brain restructure themselves in a way where we know what's going on in a different way and we know what we need to do in each situation in which we find ourselves to move ourselves in the direction that we would love our lives to go. This is the part of the brain that we can then set by taking a psychological snapshot to ensure that we move effortlessly and the science behind that phrase as well, that we move effortlessly in the direction we would love our lives to go. Now, we need to pause for a second because we need to understand that I'm covering a huge amount of ground in a very short space of time in this podcast episode today, but I intend to cover it in a lot more detail in the forthcoming Thursday morning videos. To be aware of my Thursday morning videos, I've been sending out a free Thursday morning video every Thursday morning since December 2018. There are over 830 of them at this stage. But over the coming weeks, I'm doing longer ones, which when put together, will actually look and feel and have the experience of being a mini training course where we go into more detail in relation to what I've just said how to set your mind to move yourself effortlessly in the direction that you'd love your life to go. Because there are so many loaded statements in that single sentence that require a little exploration, a little teasing out, and a little explanation. So that's, that's what I'm doing starting Thursday, the 9th of November. But let's get back to what we were talking about a moment ago. Once I take control of what I would describe as the levers of power in my brain, because you become omnipotent, all powerful, when you can control that to which you pay attention. Because, and this is the objective of meditation, or at least one of the key objectives of meditation, when we take control of that to which we pay attention, we do so by training ourselves to pay attention to the reality of the present moment. How, how completely different that is from the unreality that we think is reality, that our ordinary, normal, crazy thoughts would otherwise create for us. As I've said a couple of weeks ago, whether you use your mind normally, crazily, or use your mind in this completely new way, you create your own reality. As we said in last week's podcast, either way, you create what you think is your own reality. Which reality? I asked this question last week as well. Which reality would you prefer? The reality that is created by the utter mayhem in your head of the same 70,000 thoughts whizzing through your head every day since you were 13 years of age and all the crap that goes with that, or a reality that you would love to experience? So when I talk about taking control, I'm talking about taking control of how you use these key components in your brain. The brain will restructure itself according to the way in which the brain's user 
uses it. It's a phenomenon known as neural plasticity, and it's been well documented for the last 40 years. More thoroughly documented, I have to say, since neuroscience and all the wonderful equipment that uh, uh, through neuroscience enables us to see what's going on in the brain. But neuroscience has confirmed this again and again and again. So when I talk about taking control, I'm talking about you taking control of these components in your brain by meditating, which activates these components and which through regular meditation transforms these components into a coherent set of neural components that enable you be present, know what's going on and know exactly what you need to do and obviously what you don't need to do as well to get you to where you would love to go. Now, I didn't say want. And I think I mentioned somewhere, whether it was in a podcast episode or a video over the last couple of weeks, that wanting is constructed by thought. So we don't want to talk about want. What we want to talk about is what you would prefer to have lots of in your life, the experiences that you would love to have in your life. That's how we go about setting our mind. It's exactly like the merguez with the smoke coming off it on the barbecue. It isn't what I want, it is the things I would love to experience and what they mean to me. We're talking about a deep emotional state that some of my clients call joy. Now, some people will say to me, oh, hold on a minute. Now, joy, that's only a word I see once a year on Christmas cards. Nobody has joy in their lives. But if you are not enjoying yourself, why did you bother getting out of bed this morning? We need to be enjoying ourselves because this is it. So we're taking control, not of our mind, we're taking control of the key components of our brain. We're not trying to brainwash ourselves by taking control of our mind. What we're trying to do when we meditate is develop our ability to experience the reality of the here and now, which means that we are one of the 4% of people who being in control of their own state of mind are living their lives to the full. We're no longer one of the 96% of normal crazy people. But the really interesting thing is, if we talk about what you would love to experience or what you would prefer to have in your life, we're not talking about setting goals in the way in which the businesses that we talked about at the start of this podcast cast their goals in concrete. And those concrete goals were normally expressed in pounds, shillings and pence or dollars and cents or euros and cents. It's not what we're talking about. Actually, what we're talking about is letting ourselves go, letting rip, if I can put it like that, letting ourselves go so that we literally begin to experience and live the life that our thinking mind could never begin to even imagine. Again, I used an expression a couple of days ago. Again, I'm not sure whether it was a podcast or a video because I record a lot of stuff a lot of the time, but I made the point that when people find themselves in a situation where they've no time to think, they've only time to act, say an emergency, 
they take on what they consider to be superhuman powers. You have superhuman powers. It's just that your thinking mind thinks you don't. So you need to let yourself rip, as I said a minute ago. You need to let yourself go. You need to, in the words of the title of this podcast, just let go. To succeed, you need to just let go. And the paradox of it all is, to just let go, you need to take control. When you take control of the key components of your brain, you put yourself in a situation where you can just let go. And literally, watch yourself do things that you never thought you could do. Listen to yourself saying things that you thought you could never say. Find yourself achieving things beyond what your thinking mind could ever have imagined to be possible. Now, now, if that is something that tickles your fancy, if that is something that you would love to learn more about, if that's the kind of life you would love to effortlessly live, if you're not getting my free Thursday morning videos, you need to use the link in this podcast player to sign up for those Thursday morning videos. Because as I said, from Thursday, November the 9th, I am doing a more in-depth set of videos for the following few Thursdays. So I can string all this together so you can embark on an adventure that you thought was never possible.